This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. Recently, I was at Hillsdale College, where I teach two weeks a year to the fantastic students there, and I came across a young woman who had had a story to tell But it wasn't her own. It was her mother's. Emily Barnum's brother, Braden, committed suicide in 2013. Today, Emily and her mom, Jill, bring us a story of recovery and reconciliation. Here's Emily. My mom sits next to me on the couch and with her eyes squeezed tightly shut, recites the following prayer from memory. Be thou triune God, in our midst, as we give thanks for those who are gone from earthly eyes. For they in thy nearer presence continue to worship you in the mystery that is one family in heaven and on earth. If it be thy holy will, please tell them how much we love them, how much we miss them, how much we long to see them again. Strengthen us to go on in loving service of all thy children. Thus we will have closer communion with thee and with thee, our loved ones. Thus we will come to know that there is no death, only a veil divides, thin as gossamer. This is my mom's response to the question, how did you get to where you are now? This prayer has provided her a personal theology of grief a kind of map for the devastation of the loss of her son to suicide. Her 20-year-old son, Braden Barnum, died in a violent high-speed car crash in October 2013. Jill Barnum was in her mid-40s, a wife, mother of three, and part-time nurse. She was at the hospital working an evening shift in the immediate care when she received the news of her son's death. How does someone even begin to recover from this kind of loss? I look at my mom six years later and see a hopeful, even joyful individual, busy leading yoga classes and facilitating writing workshops, crafting her own sometimes hilarious and sometimes tear-inciting poems. The most amazing quality I see in my mom is her ability to forgive. But this ability to forgive is something that has had to be intentionally cultivated. It's been a process, a long, challenging, messy, but very inspiring process. Really on every level, it has been a pilgrimage, one that is very much still ongoing. In the first months after Bray's death, mom recounts developing very difficult emotions. Right after Bray died, we um, were just going through the motions getting by. Then about four months later, we went on a family vacation. And it was a vacation of four of us instead of a family of five. And I believe that's when, when the uh, permanence of Bray's decision started to set in. And that's when I started to really feel sad and then quickly very angry. My mom was raised in an intense, conservative, religious setting. 
And she sees this as one of the contributing factors to feeling an immense amount of pressure to be a perfect person, a perfect mom. So I never deluded myself. I never thought I was a perfect person, perfect mom, or that we were perfect parents. But we worked hard to raise our kids to be good Christians. In fact, I wanted my kids to love God in a authentic way. It wasn't even just going through the motions, but we did. We, uh, we attended church regularly, we studied the Bible, we taught the Bible, we memorized scripture, and so on. So when Bray died, my faith and my mothering were on trial. We had fallen into the mistake of believing that when you're doing things right, trying to do the right thing, be good people, that the bad things don't happen to good people. Suicide death, perhaps more than any, more than other kinds of loss, elicit a lot of guilt. I needed, I learned early on uh, that my grief process would be separating out mothering and faith from mental illness and suicidal ideation as a cause for his decision, for his decision to die, to kill himself, to blame mothering. Looking back, both my mom and my dad had channeled all their energy into doing everything right. The way had been set out before them and they had followed it, but it had not worked. Nothing, not the careful parenting, the psychiatrists, the counselors, the meds, had worked to save their son from his mental illness and suicidal ideations. Rebellion had never been an option for my mom, but now it was the only thing left. She remembers going for runs and literally yelling at God. I would go out for a run and I was yelling at God. If you can't tell Bray that I love him, that I'm sorry, and that I miss him, then if you can't give that to me, I want nothing from you. Nothing to do with you, God. And that was the mother, that's Emily's mother, Jill. And this suicide, well, it shattered the family and shattered, well, at least the mom's faith and faith in her own mothering capabilities and capacities. And by the way, suicide is a subject we've touched on before and will continue to because it, it haunts and hurts so many people. So many people are affected by this. There probably aren't many families in America who haven't in some way experienced this. When we come back, Jill and Emily Barnum's story, coming to terms with their brother and son's death by suicide in 2013, Braden, here on Our American Stories.
And we're back with the story of Jill Barnum here on Our American Stories, the mother of Emily Barnum, who's a student at Hillsdale College, a young woman I met while teaching there this past year. When we last heard from her, Jill was doubting her faith in the midst of losing her own son to suicide. Here's the mom, here's Jill. As time went on, my anger and really my hatred, hatred of myself, hatred of my family, hatred of my background, um, just grew and uh, carried around an an enormous sense of failure. Um, My thoughts became circular and destructive, obsessing about what I could have done differently or how I could have helped Bray. But there must have been something in there um, in me that knew that I needed to do something different. So I began planning this trip into the woods. The way out of consuming bitterness first emerged in the form of a trail map which my mom found in a sporting goods store. I don't know why I went into that sporting goods store, but once there, I found my way to a, a map rack and a map for the Jordan River Valley um, got my attention. And I recognized it as a backpacking trip Um, in northern Michigan, just several hours from where I live. And I remember that I just almost automatically decided that is something I'm going to do. That is something I'm going to make happen. And I've, I've never backpacked before. So, yeah, it just became something new to be consumed with, other than grief and anger. For my mom, backpacking became a way of replacing the negative thoughts. My mom understood that there was no way to undo what had happened, Braden ending his life and any role she had played in that. But she knew that her obsessive thoughts were not in service to pursuing the truest and fairest narrative. Out on the trail, my mom fell into prayer. This kind of prayer was very meditative and repetitious. It corresponded with what she was actually physically doing. Uh, walking and walking and walking. She was out in the middle of nowhere, Michigan, with just a pack and a journal, her thoughts and God. So as my foot, my boot hit the trail, I paired each footfall with a phrase. I'm sorry, I love you, I miss you. I'm sorry, I love you, I miss you. And walking became very methodical, very meditative. Uh, With each click of my pole, each footfall, the squeaking of my backpack. I love the sound of a squeaking backpack. But the circular and angry thoughts were becoming less and less prevalent. And I was becoming more peaceful out on the trail. It was the first anniversary of her son's death when my mom came back from the trail and the reality had not changed. She was still mourning the loss of her son and would be in some way for the rest of her life. 
but she had found a tangible way to help herself move forward. Somewhere in this process, my mom began accompanying my dad and me to a new church where there was a fresh message of love and grace. I went off to college, but when I came back to visit, my mom was attending a church book group. This was when she encountered the prayer which was to become her personal theology of grief. It was tucked away in one of the group's readings on Celtic spirituality. The church was preparing to go on a pilgrimage to Scotland, to Iona, Scotland, and so we were, we were reading through um, some material on Celtic spirituality, and my eyes fell on that middle stanza. If it be your perfect will, will you tell them how much we love them and miss them? I immediately recognized in that stanza the same ideas, the same instinct of what I wanted to say to God, that I was yelling on the road as I ran down the road, and the same thing that I was repetitively um, saying in a mantra and a prayer on the hiking trail. And here it was in this published, official prayer written by a ordained pastor from another land, from another part of the world. And I was so relieved. I don't think I was looking for affirmation, but I was so relieved to see that somebody else had the same instinct and that he was respectful and legit. <laughs> so it, it was just affirming and that's where I started. That was the beginning of making this prayer my own. If it be thy holy will, please tell them how much we love them, how much we miss them, how much we long to see them again. The next time my mom went into the woods, her journal had this prayer written inside the front cover. She had walked and prayed, and as she did so, the prayer became a part of who she was. My mom was trailing miles, but the real feat was the quiet and steady healing of her spirit. This prayer offered a way for my mom to love Braden now, first because it allowed her to say what she wished she could have said more often when he was alive but it also invited her to do something after what felt like a million missed chances. If I could go back, I would have been more, I would be more comforting for Bray. I would have hugged him more, of course tell him that I loved him, and just listen more. His suffering for me was an indictment of my, my mothering or our parenting, and there was something Something selfish about that, because I made it about myself sometimes, but I don't know if anything would have been different. And that's a question I'll never be able to answer, of course. But I do know that I wish I'd been more comforting. After the second stanza, my mom entered the theology of the prayer laid out in the first stanza. Be thou triune God in our midst, as we give thanks for those who are gone from earthly eyes. For they in thy near presence continue to worship you in the mystery that is one family in heaven and on earth. I struggled to pray into and believe that first stanza. 
because it implies in family and friends, church or biological, harmony and connectedness. And I did not have capacity for harmony and connectedness. So as I worked to become more emotionally healthy and I healed that first stanza, became easier to pray. As my mom continued to move forward in her healing, she moved beyond the first and middle stanzas of the prayer to the last, which encouraged her to love Bray now through loving the part of the one family still on earth. Strengthen us to go on in loving service of all thy children. The, the middle stanza that drew me in was comforting. The first stanza was teaching me to forgive. And so then when I moved on to the final stanza, strengthen us to go on, it was teaching me how to go on living. I don't know if I was doing any more different serving than I've ever done before, but the activities I did to connect with and love other people were dedicated and still are dedicated to Bray. I really do believe that. As we serve, we're closer to God. And in being closer to God, we're closer to our loved ones. And a special thanks to Jill Barnum for telling her story. It's a tough one to tell when a son commits suicide. And a special thanks to Emily Barnum, the daughter who really wanted this to happen and really serving her mom. And what a triumph this story was of, of forgiveness over grief. And in the end, a path back to God and to family. By the way, I'm sorry, I love you, and I miss you. Well, those, those three sentences can't be stated enough in your life. If we learned anything from this story, that's it. If I could go back, Jill said, I'd be more comforting. I'd just listen more. Braden's suffering was an indictment of my parenting. And that was selfish because that was about me. What I do wish in the end is that I was more comforting. The Barnum Family Story, here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our series, Heroes of the Second World War, and this is one of my favorites, and it's brought to us by Rishi Sharma, a young man that has spent his life traveling the world, interviewing over a thousand allied soldiers of World War II. In this series, we bring you their stories in their own words. Here is Rishi. Between 1939 and 1945, the nations of the world entered the bloodiest war history has ever seen. 16 million Americans served in World War II to fight the Axis powers. Some of these men, the true heroes of the Second World War, are still with us today, but are dying 
at an alarming rate. By 2018, fewer than half a million were still alive. Today, the youngest are in their mid to late 90s. Since my junior year of high school, I set out to find these men and capture their stories to preserve and honor their memories before they fade away. My name is Harold E. Nelson. They say if your initials spell something, it's a sign you're going to be wealthy. My initials spells HEN, H-E-N. So I wait for my wealth. One time, while I was in the service, I wrote this poem was expressions of some feelings I felt at that time. When I was a tail gunner at a B-17, stationed at Foggia, Italy, and flying 22 missions over Europe. Tonight, O oh Lord, as I lay in bed and think of the task of tomorrow I dread, I pray that thou shalt grant me peace and help me forget the job I detest. And so, O oh Lord, as we prepare to take off to do our job up there aloft, may thou give me courage to see it through and accomplish the task that I am asked to do. And then, O oh Lord, when we reach the spot where the flax seems so clear and hot, I pray that by my faith in you, I'll be able to stick it out till it's through. And then, O oh Lord, I ask for a safe return. Of course, it is something I always yearn, but no matter what thou would have it be, my faith shall always remain in thee. When the war ended in Europe, there's a lot of celebration. But I just went back to my barracks, laid back on the bed, and just shed tears of relief. I've had enough. Harold returned from the war and entered a seminary in New Jersey where he graduated and then returned to his home state to serve as a pastor at the First United Methodist Church in McPherson, Kansas. A kid lived across the street from me was asked to interview a veteran. Well, he knew I was a veteran, so he came to talk to me. And so he made the comment, you consider yourself a Christian, don't you? And I said, yes. He said, you're a Christian? He said, how could you, as a Christian, go out there and do things to kill other people? And I said, well, we have police departments, don't we? Yeah. So what do they have to do? Sometimes they gotta go out and kill people in order to save other people. 
And I'm sure that I went on bombing missions. We missed our targets. Sometimes we hit our targets. But there's a lot of dead people afterwards. But that's just the reality of, of war. You know, there's a little book came out called 1945. And it deals with the development of the atom bomb. And uh, the thousands of hours that were put in developing that atom bomb and how destructive it was and how many innocent people were killed. But I think that the way the Japanese were, that if we were to try to invade Japanese, first of all, they had on the island, I think 400 some mostly American prisoners. They'd be the first ones they'd wipe out. And a lot of them would fight to the death before they give up. So there's no easy answers. I just felt it was my duty. I didn't volunteer for the army. I, I let them draft me. I made some choices as to how I'd function. I went to gunnery school and went to bombardier school. Changes took place and decided that just be the airman. Harold now lives an hour and a half away from McPherson and receives a list from his parish of birthdays and anniversaries and also a list of those who are sick and have passed away. He has found meaning in calling these people to say happy birthday, happy anniversary, and that he's thinking about them. If they are sick, or if their loved ones have passed. That seems to mean a lot to a lot of people. Probably does me more good than it does them. That's probably the reason I'm still alive. I feel I still have some purpose. And a special thanks to Rishi Sharma. And by the way, if you know of any World War II vets alive and wishing to tell their story, reach out to Rishi at heroesofthesecondworldwar.org. That's heroesofthesecondworldwar.org. And what a project for a young man to undertake. What a special, special person Rishi is. And my goodness, what a voice you just heard. Harold Nelson, tail gunner, veteran, World War II. And he didn't get into the specifics and it was interesting that he didn't, but that prayer said it all in the end. And why write a prayer for yourself like that unless what you're about to do? Well, it's dangerous, and as he confessed, sometimes he knew his bombs missed their targets. And even when they hit, he was responsible for taking a life. And it's a choice he made, and it's something that cops have to do and soldiers have to do. But it doesn't mean there's not a price. That's why we know a lot about PTSD now and so much more. They called it shell shock back in the day. And so what what terrific storytelling. And by the way, being a part of a bomber crew was one of the most deadly occupations during the war. Nearly 71% were reported either killed or missing in action. And by the way, we also have more stories 
in our Heroes of the Second World War series, a love story of a Mississippi farmer who would fight in Italy and France and would meet a military nurse who he'd spend the rest of his life with. And the second is a first-hand account of surviving Pearl Harbor. And there are and will be many, many more. The story of Harold Nelson, our Heroes of the Second World War series, here on Our American Story. American stories and up next well it's a story about our history and I'm talking way back and all of our stories about this country all of our stories about American history are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College where you can go to study all the things that matter in life all the things that are beautiful in life and if you can't get to Hillsdale Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses go to hillsdale.edu that's Hillsdale. Edu. Today, Robbie brings us the story about a piece of history you've probably never heard before, and it comes from one of our favorite contributors, Clay Jenkinson. While a wise ruler, a priest, a four-foot block of cheese and a giant loaf of bread baked by the Navy may sound like the makings of a fairy tale, it's actually a true story about our third president, Thomas Jefferson. Here's Clay Jenkinson to tell us more about it. Really, he regarded his election as the second American Revolution, that, and he meant it, that we'd had a revolution in 1776, and then we'd created and installed a government, but that government moved in the wrong direction towards monarchy and aristocracy and a strong central government, and we needed to restore the principles of 1776. So he reluctantly stood for the presidency in 1800 and won. There was such... Uh, anger against Jefferson in Federalist circles. People thought that he was a dangerous man. He spent too much time in France. He'd been infected by the the radical principles of the French Revolution, that he was unreliable and, and that he might destroy the country. The great majority of the American people wanted a restoration of the more democratic principles of 1776. One of the places where Jefferson was weak was in Massachusetts and Connecticut and New England, basically. And so in 1801, after his installation as president, a minister uh, up in the Cheshire Hills uh, decided that he would do a, a, make a great tribute to Thomas Jefferson uh, by way of creating the world's largest cheese. And so the Reverend Leland uh, decided that he would uh, pay tribute to Jefferson by getting the people of his district to milk their cows and, and present all of that milk to create this cheese, and they did it. They claimed that they only milked Republican cows, never Federalist cows, um, and most of this was collected in a single day. But the resulting cheese was four feet in diameter, 15 inches 
thick and it weighed over 1,200 pounds. It weighed 1,235 pounds. And so the Reverend Leland um, had two interests in, in supporting Jefferson. One was to show the country and Jefferson that New England was not 100% Federalist. And the second was in praise of Jefferson's um, principles of separation of church and state. So Jefferson wrote the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty. It was passed into law in 1786. At that time, it was the, it was the boldest statement in human history of the need to separate church and state and to protect uh, religious sensibilities from any coercion uh, by the larger public and certainly by the state or national government. And Leland was a Baptist uh, in a state that was largely Presbyterian and he would have been, he and his sect would have been seen as upstarts, non-standard, possibly heretical and deserving of state persecution, certainly of social shunning uh, in this era. And so these Baptists really counted on Jefferson as their champion because they would not have had a chance to establish their own market share in the world of Christianity had it not been for the tolerance that was being shown and the protection they were getting from uh, people like Jefferson and also James Madison. So now they've built the world's largest cheese or what they think is the world's largest cheese, but they have to get it to President Jefferson. And there was no FedEx or UPS or adequate postal system at the time to send the cheese. So uh, John Leland decided to deliver it himself. This was actually something of a logistical nightmare. Uh, first he had to take it on a sleigh um, to get it to the Hudson River. Once he got it to the Hudson, they went down in a sloop to New York City and on to Baltimore. And there they transferred this 1,235 pound cheese to a wagon and they hauled it into Washington, D.C., into the new District of Columbia, to the White House, in time for one of Jefferson's two annual White House receptions. Jefferson only opened the White House to the public twice per year, once on the 1st of January and once on the 4th of July. Jefferson uh, didn't quite know what to make of all of this. And while thankful for their gift, Jefferson wanted to make sure that everyone knew this was not a bribe what a bribe that would have been. So he actually gave a check of $200 to uh, the congregation that Leland represented so that he would have paid for this uh, cheese and not simply accepted it uh, as a gift from friendly constituents. And then he served some of that cheese at his New Year's reception in 1801. It'd be hard to eat uh, that much cheese. And so we don't know exactly how long this cheese survived. Accounts vary, but certainly he served it again at the next year's reception on New Year's Day, 1803. So it lasted for more than a year. And there are accounts from contemporary letters and diaries of guests coming to the White House to eat at Jefferson's famous White House dinner parties. And when Jefferson wasn't in the room, asking one of the serving staff, you know, could I see the could I see the cheese? Would you would you show me the cheese? And some people were allowed then to go and, and look at this this monster. Uh, it wasn't refrigerated. Washington is a very hot place, especially in the summer months. 
and the cheese therefore deteriorated and, and we have accounts of, of their having to carve out chunks of it from the middle that had molded or gotten runny but the sense we get from such historical records as still exist is that the cheese lasted a couple of years and was served on at least two New Year's receptions and maybe on other occasions and that it was sort of wheeled out on a lazy Susan and made available on those occasions because lifting a thousand pound or thirteen hundred pound cheese would be almost impossible so they had to find a way to to move it and they didn't want to leave it simply in one place. The term mammoth cheese came from a Federalist newspaper, referencing one of Jefferson's strange fascinations. Everyone knew that Jefferson had a special interest in the woolly mammoth and the mastodon, and that his friend Charles Wilson Peale was digging up mastodon bones up in New England and displaying them at his museum in Philadelphia. So it soon became known that this was the mammoth cheese, uh, which was a sort of playful, somewhat ironic, slightly irreverent tribute to Jefferson's scientific interests. And Leland became known as the mammoth priest uh, for this stunt. And and he took a lot of ribbing uh, all along the route from uh, Massachusetts to Washington, D.C. and back. But it made him sort of famous. If giant cheese weren't enough, Jefferson would then receive a similarly odd gift from the Navy. Well, then the, the U.S. Navy decided to create the world's largest loaf of bread. And, and they used a whole barrel of flour um, to make um, a prodigy of, of a loaf of bread. The thing about bread, uh, as opposed to cheese, is that bread doesn't stand up very well over time. You, you can't preserve bread for a couple of receptions. You have to serve it. Jefferson was not famous for his interest in the Navy. He actually created the Navy, but Jefferson starved the Navy of funds and not only made the War of 1812 inevitable, but made us nearly lose it once it came. The Navy, in producing the world's largest loaf of bread, or this mammoth loaf of bread, uh, may have had more strategic interests in mind. During a Senate-sponsored party to rally support for a naval war in the Mediterranean, a Navy baker just around noon wheeled in the mammoth loaf, said to be 12 feet in length, 2 feet in breadth, and of suitable height. Along with the loaf, they brought out the remnants of the mammoth cheese, an enormous side of roast beef, and quite a bit of alcohol. President Jefferson stepped up, pulled out his pocket knife, and cut the first slice of bread. From there, all we really know is that the party quickly devolved into a noisy, drunken affair. Probably, if you'd said to Thomas Jefferson at home, if he were in Madison, were were sitting in, in Jefferson's library and having a glass of Bordeaux, and Madison had said, what about the cheese? Jefferson probably would have rolled his eyes and said, this is the sort of thing that happens in a democratic culture. You know, P.T. Barnum was right. You know, the American people love stuff like this. They love carnival, they love freaks, they love prodigies, they love fairs. And to this day, you know, you go to the State Fair in Iowa and you'll see a giant butter sculpture of Elvis Presley. We have the world's largest Holstein cow in North Dakota and Minnesota has the world's largest prairie chicken and the world's largest pelican and the world's largest walleye and so on. This is just some zany part of the American spirit. Indeed, and you've been listening to Clay Jenkinson tell the story of the mammoth cheese and the mammoth loaf. And great job as always to Robbie. And my goodness, we know that there was always a divided America. 
I mean, go and visit Monticello in Charlottesville, Virginia, and you'll see that bust of Hamilton. And my goodness, Jefferson had no, no good words to say about Hamilton. Those Federalists, those guys in those big cities are going to ruin these small rural hamlets. And so we've been fighting ever since. But we've also been building a great country and getting along, too. Clay Jenkinson is the director of the Dakota Institute and co-host of Public Radio's Thomas Jefferson Hour. So he knows a little bit about the subject. And I went to Mr. Jefferson's Law School at the University of Virginia. And I'm still, still indebted to the place. The story of the mammoth cheese and the mammoth loaf here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And our favorite stories to tell are just ordinary American redemption stories, second chances, even third chances that this country allows people to have and to pursue. It's a beautiful part of our nature. Centoya Brown served 15 years of a life sentence for killing a 43-year-old real estate agent when she was 16 years old after being forced into prostitution by a man called Cutthroat. The now-married Brown Long has never denied her crime, but alleges she acted out of self-defense. Here's Centoya to share her story. So I was born Fort Campbell, Kentucky, which is a military base right on the line, um, Kentucky, Tennessee. And I was raised there in Clarksville by my adopted parents. Uh, my father was military, and my mother, she was a teacher. I was really my dad's sidekick when I was younger. Um, I considered sidekick, I guess he would consider it apprentice because anytime he would build something, I always had to go fetch him the tools. Um, I guess it was pretty convenient for him, but those were one of my favorite pastimes with my dad is helping him build stuff, helping him fix stuff around the house. Um, and then of course, sitting down with him and listening to all of his stories about his time in Vietnam and Desert Storm. Sometimes they were boring, but I just really just appreciated that time just spending with him. And my mother, it was the same. Whenever my father retired from the military, um, he actually started driving trucks, so he would be gone for long periods of time. So it would just be my mom and me. And she was really into gardening. I wasn't, but I did enjoy kind of just hanging outside with her um, watching her plant, and if we weren't doing that, then we were in the house watching HGTV. All of my childhood memories of softball games, soccer games, they've all been recorded over accidentally with HGTV shows. So up until the point that I turned 16, I thought school was the worst possible thing to have ever happened to me in my life. I should have been really great in school. I was smart. I was always getting good grades. But for some reason, I was always finding myself in the principal's office, um, whether that was because I didn't want the teacher to help me with work. I just wanted to figure it out for myself, whether I had a smart remark for the teacher. Just any little thing would get me sent to the principal's office and found myself getting suspended. I believe I was 11 when I was first expelled from school. Um, I had brought a bottle of no-dose to class, which is caffeine pills. I had found them in my sister's husband's truck. She, he had left the truck there whenever 
he was deployed and they went to Hawaii and I was just playing around one day and found these caffeine pills, took them to school for show and tell and next thing I know I was expelled for zero tolerance drug policies. I didn't consider them to be a drug, didn't know they were a drug, but that didn't matter. I was kicked out of school and couldn't return to public school. It seemed like they were just really looking for an excuse, so part of me wasn't necessarily surprised, and it really just added to that feeling that, you know, I just wasn't wanted there, and it wasn't a place for me. I never really fit. I was kind of an outcast. Like I said, when I was growing up, my dad would always tell me all the stories about him, you know, in war and what he did when Charlie was coming at 3 o'clock and, and how they did. And so I thought, okay, well, this is a game that I want to play with my friends. And so my neighbor, my friend from down the street, and some other kids in the neighborhood, we were all together playing random games, you know, bubblegum, bubblegum in a dish and any, mini, miny, mo. And I said, well, how about this new game? Let's play war. And they were like, well, what is that? I said, well, we're all going to get some rocks. You stand on that side of the street. We're going to stand on this side of the street. And we're just going to throw them at each other and see what happens. And that's what we did. And I ended up picking up the biggest rock that I could that I found. Why? I don't know. But I threw it, and it hit my neighbor square in the forehead. And that was the moment that I knew I'm about to get in trouble. Like, this has gone horribly wrong. And she just started bleeding and screaming. And then everybody was like, this is all your fault. And I was like, wait a minute. You all wanted to play. I thought we were having fun. So after that, nobody's parents really wanted their kids playing with me. And of course, I got in trouble. My dad, he kind of understood. But it was just, I think that was, that was like one of the turning points when I kind of lost a lot of friends. So going to alternative school was a completely different experience. These kids had been involved in the justice system already. Most of them were on probation of some kind. Many of them had already been to facilities, and they returned back from the facilities to go to this school. They smoked freely. Some of them did drugs freely. I had never been around that because I was raised in a military community. A lot of the kids that I was around were kids of military families. They just, you just don't do that. And what was different from me being in this alternative school around these kids is these kids didn't judge me. They didn't make me feel like an outcast. They didn't make me feel like I wasn't wanted or I had to be this or be that to fit in with him. And so I really found that, oh, this is kind of where I fit. Like, this is a place for me. So we all decided to skip school. And sometimes when we skip school, we would just ride the city bus around town, walk around downtown, and just see whatever we could get into. But this day, Samantha says, you know, my mom, she's not home. We can go to my house and we could just hang out. And we're like, okay, cool. And when we get there, she's like, oh, man, I forgot my key. And she's like, no worries, no worries. My bedroom window is open. So she opens the window, and I'm the smallest one there. So they push me through the window, and I unlock the door. It is her house, but when her mother come home, she didn't feel that we were supposed to be in the house. Um, she was very upset. Some things she claimed were missing from the house that were stolen, 
And I mean, I don't know if anybody stole it or not. I can't be accountable for the other people that was with me, but we all ended up being charged, not only for breaking and entering, but for theft of property. And you're listening to Centoya Brown, and she's the author of Free Centoya, My Search for Redemption in the American Prison System. Let's pick up where we last left off. So after I was charged with my other three co-defendants, um, that's bad when you say co-defendants when you're talking about a 12-year-old, but I actually had to go to juvenile court. And this was my first time ever in a courtroom. My father, he had to pay for an attorney to represent me. And I mean, it was rough. It was like, wow, like all for skipping school, like that's it. And I even thought back to the no-dose pills, like for caffeine pills, like this is what's happened from all of that. This is what's become of it. So I spent some time in juvenile detention and the attorney ended up getting a deal where I got out and I was on probation. So whenever I went to the court, one of the first things they do is they send you for a mental evaluation. And so they're in this facility, which I definitely didn't feel like I fit in because this was like a real deal mental facility. You had people um, who were struggling with autism. You had people who had Down syndrome. You had people with schizophrenia. Um, It was kind of scary to be in there. And again, couldn't be around my parents, couldn't contact my parents. And what I found comforted me there was there was this woman who was teaching some of the girls there how to crochet. And I started learning, and that was something that would calm me. So I just brought my crochet stuff to class, and I would sit there and crochet whenever I finished with my work. Well, one day I went to lunch, and I remember that I had forgot my purse. And so I went back into the classroom to get my purse, and I saw that the teacher had been in my purse, and she was actually going through it, and she was pulling out the yarn saying, you're not supposed to be doing this. And I said, well, you're not supposed to be in my stuff. And I said, give me that. And I took it out of her hand, and all of a sudden she started screaming and hollering, calling for the SRO. Next thing I know, he's coming in, and she's saying, I assaulted her. And I said, I didn't assault her. I took my stuff out of her hand. They said, well, did you snatch it? I said, well, yes, it's mine. They said, well, that's assault. And so I ended up getting charged with assault. I had my probation violated and I was returned back to the facility, but this time I was put in state custody. I was 13 when I was put in state custody. It was March. So two months after I had turned 13. And in state custody, you can have an indeterminate sentence or a determinate sentence. You could be there for a determinate amount of time or indeterminate. I was indeterminate, meaning whenever they felt like they wanted to let me go back home to my parents is when I would go. So I ended up spending a year and a half in state custody. And... To be honest with you, the only reason I got out um, is because my mother had got fed up and she had threatened to actually file a suit against the state whenever they had allowed for my news, my picture to be placed in a newspaper. So I was 15 when I finally got out of state custody. It was summertime. I still remember the exact moment. Uh, my mama got to walk me through the gates of Woodland Hills. Uh, I was wearing regular clothes. It was just, whew. I just felt like the biggest sigh of relief 
And when I left, like, I was like, you know what? I really want to do well. Um, I don't want to go back to school and get in trouble. I'm not doing this anymore. So that whole attitude that lasted for maybe a month after my aftercare ended. And it was on the ride home back from Nashville to Clarksville that my mom tells me that they had been divorced. And the whole time she had been telling me, you know, he's gone to the store, he's at his friend's house, he's in the backyard working on the pool. It was all a lie. Like he had been gone that whole entire time, but she didn't want it to affect my progress in the program. She didn't want it to overwhelm me or distract me from doing what I needed to do to come home. So that was, um, that was a pretty big bomb that was dropped on me first thing. Then all of a sudden, here's this man that I know absolutely nothing about, who apparently they had been friends from when she used to live in New York, and now they were talking on the phone for hours and hours and hours, and he came to visit there at the house, and when he came to visit, it's not like he was being a visitor. Um, he was telling me what I needed to do and trying to order me around, and I was just like, hold up, <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. And so I said, well, you know what, that, fine, I'll just go back and hang out with my friends that I met when I was on the run from state custody. And that's when I ran away. So I called up some friends that I had met while I was on the run in Nashville. And when I say friends, these are older women. These women are in their mid-20s, and I was just 15 years old. And they came and they got me, they welcomed me back. And there I was back living the life that I had lived on the run before. And that meant you know, having sex with adult men and that being normalized, that being permitted and even encouraged by the adults that I was around, which is something completely, completely different from what I had been raised with. But I mean, it had become the norm for me. Um, that also meant that I was getting high every day I was smoking weed every single day, and that was the time that I had actually met my trafficker, is during that time, when I was 16 years old. So I met Cut at a gas station um, here in Nashville, and I actually met him. I was riding with friends who were looking for another man who had just raped me, and they were going to you know, take out some revenge on him and confront him about what he'd done. And we stopped at the gas station and I wanted some, some Newports. And so we walked up, I walked up to this guy and was like, do you have a Newport? And he was like, no. And he offered to give me $5 to get a pack if I would give him my number. So I did. After that, you know, we started talking on the phone. He started coming to pick me up and hang out with me and I just, pretty much just fell head over heels within a matter of days for this stranger, um, this older guy who did not have good intentions for me at all. But all that I saw when I was with him was that he listened to me. You know, in my mind at that time, it was like, wow, like he's really interested in me. No one really pays me this level of attention. No one really cares about you know, my life story, my thoughts, my feelings, what I'm into. But here, he's just like completely absorbed into it. 
now I understand that he was looking, you know, for things that he could manipulate. He was looking for things that he could exploit. He was listening um, because he needed to find out how he could really get into my head um, and play me. So when you're on the run, you know, you can't necessarily just go get a job. Um, I didn't have an ID or a license or anything like that. I didn't have my birth certificate. Couldn't really make money by any kind of legal means. But one of the women that I was staying with, her boyfriend was actually a drug dealer. And so there I was selling drugs um, in this project in North Nashville at the age of 16, but really just dove headfirst into it. So whenever I would go out, when Cut would send me out to go get money, he'd always send me with his gun. Um, I had never shot a gun, didn't really anticipate ever having to use it. It was just something where, you know, I had it, I knew I had it, it was just a safety measure. But he always had it, the safety was off, there was a bullet in the chamber. He said, if something ever happens, just squeeze the trigger. So that time, this guy had picked me up in this little white truck. He had got me something to eat, and while we're sitting there um, waiting on the food to come, that's when he had asked me, you know, was I up for any action? So I ended up going back to his house with him. And while we was there, you know, I kept trying to, like, stall because he started acting weird. Like, he started showing me guns. On the drive there, he was telling me how he used to be a sharpshooter in the military, and it's like, why, is, why does he feel the need to tell me all of these things? And you're listening to Centoya Brown's story, and one bad choice after another, and just some really bad choices by the system, too, and by authorities, and bad rulemaking and enforcement that almost makes no sense. And you combine all that with a, a girl who finds out dad's gone, and then she's gone, and then in come the predators. And one named Cut, short for Cutthroat. And she loved that he listened to her, but of course he was listening for a reason. He was getting into her mind. He was looking for things he could manipulate, things he could exploit. That's why he listened, said Centoya. Let's pick up where we last left off. Why does he feel the need to tell me all of these things? Um, he tried to tell me that he wrote the song by Lee Greenwood, um, proud to be an American, which obviously I knew that was a lie. Like any kid who's ever had to sing that at their assembly knows, like that's that's not true. So it was all just really, like it was really strange, it was really uncomfortable. And like with him talking about this gun, then when we got to the house, you know, showing me this gun, it's like I felt that I felt that he was trying to intimidate me. And at that point, I just wanted to leave. So I kept trying to stall. I remember asking if we could go watch the TV downstairs because downstairs it was close to the door that we came in and I was thinking I could just make a run for it. The door's right there. But while we're in that room, here we have an entire gun cabinet. And so I'm like, yeah, I'm not going anywhere. So I said, well, you know what? I'm just going to go up and I'm just going to pretend like I'm asleep. I'm going to ask him if I can have a nap real quick. And so that's what I did. And while I was laying there, pretending like I was asleep, um, he kept getting up and going into the next room, then coming back, just like staring at me, like looking over at me. 
going into the bathroom, going to the next room, and like this whole time, like I'm just freaking out. I'm like, what is he doing? Like, what's really going on? There was a moment like when he had got into the bed and he had reached over and grabbed me, and I was like, ah, and I was, you know, it was a little bit more emphatic than just like, you know, somebody who is really sleeping that may just kind of shrug away. And I'm like, oh, he knows I'm pretending now. Now he's he's going to be pissed off. And he rolls over, and I'm thinking he's reaching for something. And all this is happening, like all these thoughts are happening, like within the space of like two seconds. And that's just just a small fraction of the thoughts. Like I can't even explain like how my mind was just racing at that time. Just panic was just really setting in. And he goes and I see his body turn and that's when I had grabbed the gun out of the nightstand, out of the purse that was on the nightstand and I shot him. It was like this pop and then it was like quiet. So I went back to the hotel room um, and cut, was there at the room and I came in and I was like, I think I just killed somebody. And he was like, what? Like, he thought I was playing. I was like, I'm, I'm so serious. I just shot someone. And, like, he didn't believe me. But he just told me to go wipe down the car, wipe down the truck, and park it in the Walmart parking lot. And so that's what I did. So we were laying down, and the cops knock on the door. And so they come in with these shotguns and, like, these big old guns pointed at me, like, cocking these guns. So I was tried um, there in the juvenile court. They had a transfer hearing about November. So I actually sat there and, you know, told the judge everything that had happened, you know, in the hopes that she would see, okay, well, this isn't, like, this wasn't a malicious situation. This isn't something that she should be prosecuted for murder for. I'll just keep her in the juvenile system and treat her. But then you have the district attorney who was saying, no, like she's incorrigible. There's there's nothing else that, that you can do for her. She needs to be tried as an adult. And as a matter of fact, I believe all of this was premeditated. Two weeks after the hearing, I was called down to the visitation area and I was told by my public defender that I was tried as an adult, that I was going to be transferred. And I felt like the world just like fell from beneath me because now I went from okay maybe I'll spend three years in the treatment facility here going through DCS again to know I may end up spending the rest of my life in prison. So I was taken to the adult jail to CCA. I had to be housed in segregation. Um, just basically stuck in a box until my trial, and my trial didn't happen until two years after I first um, went to the, the adult jail. Um, very difficult because you can't like talk to people on a regular basis. You can't have visitation with your family, um, phone calls, anything like that. So the trial lasted several days, and I think it was like six hours they took to deliberate. And they came back in, I started looking, like looking at them, each and every one as they came in, because I'm like, I need any kind of sign. I need to know what are they about to tell me? And like, none of them will look at me. And this one guy, the, the only black guy who was on the jury, like he just like kind of just shook his head and hung his head. 
And that's when I knew. I was like, yep. Yep, it's not good. And they convicted me of first-degree murder and sentenced me to life in prison on the spot. Automatic life sentence. I didn't cry. I didn't hold my head down or anything. And then when I got into my cell, I just broke down. It was nighttime by that time. And I just remember crying and praying. And I said, God, if you get me out of here, I'll tell the world about you. Like, you know, just let him know I'll do anything. If you just get me out of here, please don't let me spend the rest of my life in prison. So there was about two weeks um, between the time that I was convicted and sentenced um, until I was actually transported to the, the prison. And during that time, some of the women who had already been to prison and who were back in the county, they were trying to coach me and tell me, well, this is how you need to carry yourself. And you need to walk around like this when you walk on the compound and make sure your head's held high. And let me show you how to throw a punch. And so they were going through all this and I'm thinking, oh man, like it's gonna be rough. Like I'm thinking visions of, you know, the show Oz and every prison movie that I've ever watched. It's like, man, like this, this is no joke. And, you know, I start stuffing my face with pop tarts and and pretzel pieces thinking I got to buff up because, you know, I'm, I'm headed to the to the big house and I get there and it's like a college campus. Like, you know, and I'm like, well, this is not what I expected. Um, I mean, it was more psychological warfare and psychological oppression, more psychological attacks than there was like the physical attacks. But I actually found that like that was worse. So, you know, my attorney had told me before I had ever got to the prison, he was like, you know, you can go in there, you can start acting all crazy. And I mean, you can do that life sentence or you can go in there, you can take every program that they accept you into, you can act like you have some sense, and you can have a chance at getting out of prison someday. And by the grace of God, I ended up getting into the college course, came out of prison with not one but two degrees. So Mrs. Seabrooks was the principal there at the prison, but what I will always appreciate most about Miss Seabrooks is that she was the person, the first person that told me, God's not going to let you out of here until you come to him. You will not be free until you come to Christ. And at that time, I had just like fallen into this state where I didn't even believe anymore. Uh, at least I said I didn't believe. Um, really, I was just angry because I felt that, you know, I, I did what I was told in Sunday school and God, he didn't hold up his end of the bargain. And so I, I, this can't be true, but really I was just upset. And at the time I just brushed it off. I was like, nah, Miss Seabrooks, that's not how the law works. I'll get out when my attorneys argue before the appellate court and the appellate court overturns my sentence. And she said, all right, I'm telling you what I know. And you're listening to Centoya Brown talking about her sentence, the mindset that she had to adopt, and some people who started to care about her. She talked about the psychological attacks, which, as she put it, were worse than any potential physical attacks. And this one lady, Miss Seabrooks, who kept telling her that God had the answers for her, she was putting her faith in law and lawyers. By the way, her book, Free Centoya, My Search for Redemption in the American Prison System, is a real beauty. Go to Amazon.com and buy it. Buy one for your friend or anybody else who you think might be in trouble Anybody who's been in trouble with the system or anybody who's incarcerated, 
It's a book worth reading, and lives in prison are worth saving. Let's return to Centoya with the rest of her story. So, when I was first arrested, all over the news, I was painted as this horrible person. Like, the news just vilified me. I was this dangerous individual. The streets were safer without me. Um, but my attorney had actually met a documentary filmmaker through one of her other cases and had invited him to come in and start filming my process to the court system and interviewing me. And he took all those interviews and he created a documentary. They aired the documentary on uh, PBS on Independent Lens and it was also online. And, you know, a lot of people like started writing me from that and just like being really supportive. And I started noticing like even within the media, like kind of like that tide was changing, there was some support for me. Um, all of a sudden I get this letter from a man in Texas. So I read the letter, I open it up, and immediately the thing that stood out was that the edges of the letter was burnt. And okay, that was the second thing I noticed. The first thing I noticed was that he was really fine because he had sent these two pictures of himself. And so I ended up writing him because something was like, I'm going to write him back. I need to write him back. Because in the letter, you know, he was just talking about, you know, how God told him that I was going to get out and he was praying for me, just things like that. He didn't say, like, you know, anything that would, that would make me believe that there would be something that would follow behind that. But he did write back. And from that one letter, we started writing several letters. We started talking on the phone. Um, he started telling me about Christ, which you have to know that everyone else who would try to tell me about Jesus, I brushed it off. I dismissed it. I didn't want to hear it. But there was something about when Jamie was talking to me about him. So we continued writing. Um, not long after that, I won him over. And um, we just decided that no matter what happened, no matter what the court said, God said I was going to get out and we were going to walk in that faith and we were going to trust in that. And we weren't going to focus on the appeals because my very last appeal had been denied. We weren't going to focus on what the lawyer said. We were just going to focus on the Lord. We were going to focus on building a relationship with him. And when we kept our focus there, all of a sudden things started picking up on the outside. Things started picking up with the appeal. The appeal that was closed in the federal court, it all of a sudden opened back up. Months after, six months after he first wrote me and told me what he said, I look on the news and it's a trending topic. I look on the news and people all over the world from all walks of life are now talking about free Centoya. And Jamie said, are you surprised? And I'm like, well, yeah. And he said, what did I tell you about my God? What did I tell you? And I was like, well, I know what I know what you said and I believe it. But it's like it's happening. Like, look what's happening. Like you literally said this would happen. And here it's happening. He said, I told you what he said. Like he doesn't lie. And it's like it just it just gave me goosebumps. And that was just that was just one thing. Months after that. Um, Jamie and our pastor, Minister Tim McGee, he said that I was going to get a date in March. He said he didn't know what kind of date it was. He didn't know if it was an out date or what date, but it was something that was going to lead 
to me getting out, something that was necessary to me getting out. And we said, okay. So March comes by, first week goes by, second week till March goes by, nothing, no word, no anything. And then in that third week of March, Jamie had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And I remember calling him and he just said, you're coming home. And he started crying. And my husband, like, he doesn't cry. Like, he's a man's man. Like, you know, jujitsu champion. Like, he, he's not sitting here crying on the phone with no one. But he just broke down. He said, God is bringing my wife home. And I was like, oh, okay, did the lawyer call you? He's like, no. I said, oh, did you see something on the news? He said, no. I said, well, okay, yeah, baby, I'm coming home. He says, no. You're coming home. God told me. I heard it clear as day. The next week comes. It's the last week of March. Getting down to the wire. And all of a sudden, March 30th, my attorneys call Jamie and say, we got a date for a hearing. And the hearing that they're talking about is one that less than 1% of people get for clemency petitions. It's, it's next to impossible to get a hearing with a parole board. And I got one. And we got that date, March 30th. At the conclusion of the hearing, I ended up getting um, four votes for me to be granted clemency and then two votes for me not to be granted clemency. So at this time, the governor of Tennessee was Bill Haslam. And so it was up to him to make the decision. And, you know, I thank God that I had Jamie there was like, you need to remember that he is not the one making the decision. God has made the decision. And he's already said what's going to happen. And you need to make sure that your faith is in him, not in the process, not in, not in what anybody else down here on this earth is doing or saying. You need to trust what God has said. And I said, you're right. And when I tell you, like, that is so much easier said than done. <laughs> so it was a struggle. It was a struggle for Jamie as well. It was a true test of faith. Um, at one point, you know, Jamie was like, there has to be something, like something more, you know, that we need to be doing, you know, with our faith. There's something more with our relationship, you know, with Christ that, that we're not doing because, like, why is it there's nothing? Why is it we're going through this wilderness period? And so Jamie decided, I've got to step out on faith. He sold everything that he owned in Texas. And when I tell you everything, I mean everything. All in the space of one day, he had gotten rid of his Mercedes. He had gotten rid of his Bentley, which was his dream car. He had gotten rid of every stitch of furniture in his condo. And I remember just boo-hooing, crying. I said, you don't have a bed to sleep on? What are you going to sleep on? He said, you don't get it. He said, you don't understand. He said, I am going to get my wife. I'm going to move to Tennessee and get my wife because God says you're coming out. And I believe him, so I'm going to act accordingly. So he sold everything, and he moved up to Tennessee. And a couple weeks after that, it's when my attorneys got the call from the governor's office, from the lieutenant governor, that the governor wanted to meet with him. And he met with them. He let them know that he was going to grant me clemency. 
So one of the things that I learned, you know, even from me sitting in prison, seeing people come back and forth, back and forth in and out of those doors is the thing that made the people who stayed out different from the people who came back and forth in is was these are the people who understood like what really went in to that action, what really went into that night that ended up with me getting charged. What are the real impacts of what I've done? And, you know, by going through that thought process, you really understand like how your actions affect other people. And until you understand that your actions do affect other people, until you understand, you know, we live in community with one another. We have to be accountable, not just for our own actions, but we have to be accountable to each other. Like you're not going to learn how to live in the free world. You're not going to learn how to be successful um, as a citizen. You're not going to be successful as a person. Like how can you have any healthy relationships? How can you have any kind of, of healthy dealings, whether it be personal, business, or otherwise, if you don't get that basic concept. So we actually got married while I was still incarcerated. Uh, unbeknownst to me, he had already picked out a ring with my mom. Uh, my mom had went to Texas. He flew her out to Texas uh, for a Cowboys versus Texans game. They you know, him and her, like they had already had this planned out where Tim was going to pick me up in the van with Jamie. And then Tim was going to do the ceremony right there on the spot, all this, that, and the other. But when, you know, they came with the news to say that I was getting out of prison, that's when he told me all about that. And I was like, oh, how sweet. We don't have to wait. And so, <laughs> so he was like, what do you mean we don't have to wait? I said, oh, we don't have to wait. We can do this now. He said, well, how are we going to do it now? I said, not to worry. Don't worry. I'll take care of it. And what a laugh. And that is Santoya Brown telling her story. And what a love story, folks. Yeah, just you can't imagine someone doing that kind of thing for you, selling everything, supporting you, and putting both of their faiths, their mutual faith in God and, and not the system. And then the system suddenly worked for them. And how she looked at her own life and all the choices she made that in the end did put her there. Those were choices she could have, well, she could have exercised different choices in her life. And that accountability part, my goodness, it's so fundamental. Mercy and accountability, both, one without the other, pointless, pointless. Free Toy is the book, My Search for Redemption in the American Prison System. I urge you to get it. And if you have anybody in your family struggling with the law, struggling with drugs, struggling with life itself. This is a book worth reading because there is another side. There's a better side of life and there are other options. And her story, I know, will resonate with anybody struggling in their life. Centoya Brown's story here on Our American Stories. Mm-hmm. 